On this episode, Intimate Knowledge, Consequences, Forgiveness, Sacrifice, and Salvation. Hello everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the titles, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. This is episode four, and today we'll be going over lesson six of the Creation, Corruption, and Destruction study. Last episode, we read in chapter three of Genesis, and we talked about the temptation of man. If you happen to miss that episode, this one is going to be following that, and so you really need to go ahead and go back and listen to the first part of this because this is really the second part of that lesson. It was all about how Satan works and what it is that we can do to fight against him. And this week, we're going to be reading the end of Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to be discussing God's response to man's sin. There are consequences, but there's also extreme grace and mercy. Our memory verse is from Hebrews 10.9, and it says, He takes away the first that he may establish the second. We'll talk about what that means here in a little bit. Now, last week, just as a small recap, God told the people not to eat from a certain tree in the Garden of Eden. Satan came and deceived them, and the woman ate of the tree, and then she gave some to her husband also. Verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So something interesting about the snake is that apparently he used to have legs. And now his punishment is that he has to crawl on his belly and eat dust for the rest of his life. Which is a pretty miserable existence, I would think. God has completely taken away his legs. And then we'll go on in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So not only is he going to have to crawl on his belly and eat dust for the rest of his life, but he is always going to be an enemy of man. So contrary to what the snake charmers think, snakes are not our friends, okay? Beginning at the fall, we are at constant odds with one another. And so it says that they will bruise our heels because they will bite our legs as we're walking around. And we have the ability to bruise their head, which means we can stomp them because they're crawling on their bellies. So there's constant opposition between this animal and man for the rest of eternity because of this. All right, let's move on to verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the first thing is that childbirth is going to be painful now. 
We were always going to bear children, but it wasn't going to hurt until the fall. That's the punishment of the woman. The second punishment of the woman says that her desire shall be for her husband and he shall rule over her. When you hear your desire shall be for your husband, that doesn't sound too bad. Like I'm going to want him. He's going to be pretty handsome or he's going to be attractive to me, whatever. That doesn't sound like a punishment. But when you listen to the last part of it where it says he shall rule over you, that tells us that it did not mean that he's going to be attractive to us. What that means is that we're now always going to be in contention with our husbands. He's going to rule over us and we are going to desire to either rule over him or not be ruled over or whatever. We were supposed to be living in harmony. As we talked about in episode two, we were just supposed to live peacefully together. We were supposed to be good companions. We were supposed to help our husbands. All the work that God had given them and everything was just supposed to go great. Each of us had a role and we didn't mind because we were all serving our purpose. But this all changed whenever the people decided to sin. And so one of the consequences for the woman is that now she is going to constantly be fighting him for control. We're no longer going to live together in harmony. It is going to be something that we have to work at. A relationship is going to be something that we have to work at now. A continuous desire to be right and a fight for control. Now look at verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So let's just look at that part specifically. It says because he listened to the voice of his wife and ate of the tree that he was commanded not to eat from. If you notice back last episode where God asked him what he had done, he said, well, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the fruit. And so I think it's kind of funny because he's not only blaming the woman, he's almost blaming God because God gave him like this defective mate or something. She was supposed to be my helper and look how helpful she is. You know, what were you thinking? And I just think that's funny because we can look at that on the outside and be like, scary, like, don't say that. It's not God's fault. But I do believe that sometimes we do that in our own marriages. You know, everyone that is a Christian, when they get married, they believe God gave me this woman or this man to be my husband or wife just as God gave him the woman. And then, you know, sometimes years go by and things get difficult and we begin to be like, um, this, uh, woman you gave me, God, (laughs) or I'm not so sure about this man that you picked out for me, Lord. He's not doing exactly what I want him to do, you know? And so it all flips around from this is my God-given soulmate to, um, what was I thinking? But generally, we don't like to blame it on ourselves. So it's uh, maybe I was mistaken. Maybe God didn't give me this person. Or what was God thinking giving me this person? So anyways, I just thought that was a little bit funny. And God tells him here, because you listen to your wife. So he's letting him know, um, this is not my fault. This is not her fault. This is your fault. You decided to do this. And this is what's going to happen. So his first punishment is that he is going to have to work hard for all the things that were going to be easy before. Work is not the punishment. 
Man was always created to work, right? Remember in the beginning it says work for six days because I worked for six days, rest for one. God always intended for the man to take care of his creation. What he didn't intend is for it to be difficult. Now there's going to be thorns and thistles that grow up and he's going to have to work hard to keep all of the weeds out so that his fruit grows and produces like it needs to. Before, it was easy. He just tended the ground and watered it and everything just grew like it was supposed to and everything went great. And now that's not the case anymore because he sinned. By the sweat of your face, all of these things will be eaten of. And then notice that it says, and you will die. Again, like we talked about before, they didn't die immediately the day that they ate of the fruit. They just began to die. They began the aging process, the progression to death. And so he says, you were going to get to live here forever and everything was going to be great for you. But now you're going to die. You're not going to get to live here forever. So then skip down to verse 22. We'll go back to the others later. Verse 22, it says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So not only do they have to work hard, not only are they going to not get to live forever, they don't get to live in this garden anymore at all. Because this garden was planted by God, and the fruit is just ripe for the picking. All they have to do is walk up, get it, no work involved. Plus, the tree of life is also in the midst of the garden. And so if they stay in the Garden of Eden, then they can eat from the tree of life and then they can live forever. And God says that is not possible anymore. So he places cherubim at the entrance to Eden so that they cannot get to it. And a flaming sword that turns every which way to guard the tree of life so that there's no chance of them ever reaching the tree of life. So here's the deal. The man got greedy. He wasn't satisfied with what God gave him. He could literally walk in that garden and eat any piece of fruit he wanted but one. He didn't have to work for it. It was all easy. Everything was great. He didn't know anything bad. And all of a sudden, because he just could not help himself, he had to have one more thing. Now he's suffering the consequences of that, which means not only does he not get that one good thing, but he doesn't get a million other good things and he gets bad things too. This is the thing that happens to us when we get greedy. This is the thing that happens whenever we're not satisfied with the life that God gives to us. He wants us to be content. He wants us to be happy with the things that he's given to us. God has blessed all of us in some way. And because we live on this earth in a fallen world, everything is not perfect. So in some ways, we do not feel blessed. But everyone is blessed in some way. And when we get greedy and we decide we want more, then this is the type of thing that happens. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time on God's solution to our sin. So these are the consequences. But God has a solution for every single person that sins and every time that we sin. Let's read verse 20 and 21. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, 
Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. These tunics of skin were made from animals. So they covered themselves earlier with leaves, but that was not a permanent covering. Leaves are not very durable. They do not stand up for any length of time. So this is a permanent solution to their nakedness. It is also a permanent solution for their sin. So now they have durable clothes made out of the skin of animals that will cover their nakedness. But now we also have a sacrifice for our sin. This is the first sacrifice for sins. Consequences are just not sufficient not to bring us into a right relationship with God. And so even though man did not immediately die, something else did die for this sin immediately. I'm going to read you several verses, and we're going to talk about this concept for the rest of this time. So I want you to look with me in Hebrews 9.22. Hebrews talks a lot about this. It says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. There's no taking away of our sins without the shedding of blood. Remember last episode when I said our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus? Well, their sins were covered by the blood of an animal. Blood is the only thing that can take away the sin of man. Now that this animal has died, they are free. They are pardoned from their sin. They've received remission. So this became the practice for thousands of years of how people's sins were forgiven. And the book of Leviticus is the entire book written to the Levites who were the priests that carried out the sacrifices of the Lord. It gave them all of the guidelines that they needed to know in order to make atonement for the people's sins. Listen to this in Leviticus 17:11. It says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. It is what covers and cancels. It's what puts off our sins, okay? That's what these words mean. Atonement, remission. That's why I'm explaining these things. The laws for the priests and the church centered around this practice. But the problem is, is that animals could not adequately pay the price for a person's sin because the animal didn't actually do anything wrong. So it can't pay the price for a person's sin. But we also can't pay the price for our sin because we would all die at a very early age and no one would make it to adulthood. Therefore, the entire population of people would die out. So a new way had to be established, and thankfully, Jesus became that sacrifice for all of us. He explains this to his disciples in Matthew 26, 28. He says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is at the Passover when they're drinking the wine. And he says, Remember this whenever you drink the wine, that this is my blood that is shed for the remission of your sins. Without going into too much detail, the Passover was celebrated after the Israelites left Egypt because God sent the last plague on the Egyptians that killed their firstborn child. That is what ultimately led them to let the Israelites go. 
And God said, if you will kill a lamb and put its blood on your doorpost, then when the angel of death passes through to kill the firstborn child of each household, it will pass over your house because it will see that blood has already been shed. And I will accept that lamb's blood on behalf of your firstborn child. And so every year they would celebrate this, remembering the lamb that kept their firstborn child from dying in this plague. So Jesus is now saying, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice that is dying for you for the remission of your sins. This is a new covenant. This is a new way. I'm doing away with the old sacrifices of animals because they're not sufficient enough. And I am going to be your sacrifice. My blood is sufficient for you. So let's read about this because the Word of God says this much better than I do. Hebrews 10 explains this entire concept. So it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of these things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would have ceased to be offered. For the worshiper, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So what this is saying is that this was a picture to you. Because you needed to see that something had to die for your sins. And so I allowed this to be a shadow of the things to come. But it wasn't the very image of what was actually going to be. Because it wasn't perfect. It was just an illustration so that you could understand. But you had to do that every single year because it really wasn't a perfect sacrifice. And because you had to do this every year, you were constantly being reminded of your sins over and over. So you never really felt free of them. So this was an imperfect way of doing things. Not that God did anything wrong. Again, he was doing this not because he was like, ah, I should have done this better in the beginning. Let me do it right this time. It's because he was trying to show the people a picture because they needed to understand that something had to die for their sins But now God's creating a new, better way. Let's continue in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared. God didn't desire these sacrifices anymore. He's prepared a body, which is going to be Jesus. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of this book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. So Jesus is saying, This is me. Previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you didn't desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. That's our memory verse. So Jesus is taking away the first way so that he can establish the second more perfect way. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See how the sacrifices of the animals had to be made every single year over and over and over again, continuously reminding the people? That didn't have to happen anymore because now Jesus is here to be that sacrifice once for all, never to be done again. Listen to verse 11. 
And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he is perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So the priests are the ones that offer these sacrifices and they're having to stand daily over and over and over again, never getting to stop making these sacrifices for the people's sins. But it says Jesus, after he offered as the priest, see, he's the priest here. He gets to offer the sacrifice to God, but also he is the sacrifice. So he gets to be the priest and the sacrifice. Jesus, once he offered himself one sacrifice for sins forever, then he's done. No more standing. No more doing this over and over and over again. He gets to be done. That's why when he was on the cross, he says, it is finished. John 19, 28 through 30 is when Jesus is on the cross and he breathes his last and he says, it is finished. He's done. He doesn't have to work anymore. The work is over. He's done what he was sent there to do. Unlike the priests that never get to stop offering the sacrifices, he offered himself once for all and it is done. And now, not only is it done, but he can sit at the right hand of the Father. Luke twenty two sixty nine 69 tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting down. He's on his throne. Let's finish reading verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from the evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So God says, after this, after I send my son to be a sacrifice once for all, then I will send the Holy Spirit, because now he's going to put the laws in the hearts and minds of men. He will remember their lawless deeds no more. Listen to John 14, 26. This is Jesus, and he's talking to his disciples before he dies, and he says... But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I've told you. So he's going to write his laws in our hearts and in our minds. He's going to use the Holy Spirit now to speak to us so that we are not bound by a law that condemns us. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they didn't continue in my covenant, and I discarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He set a new way. And this new way is that Jesus is our sacrifice and that now we have the Holy Spirit to speak to all of us, to speak to our hearts and minds and tell us what is right and wrong, to guide us and remind us of the things that the Lord has told us. He is our helper, John told us. In the time when the people had to go to the priests for sacrifices, they couldn't make atonement for themselves. They couldn't ask for forgiveness for themselves. They had to go to the priest, and the priest had to ask forgiveness on their behalf with these animals. And they had a place that was called the Holiest of Holies. This is where the Ark of the Covenant sat. This was like a chest. And so it had things on the inside of it, but it was also like a seat. And it had two cherubim on either side that was covering it with their wings. And this is the mercy seat, the place that God met with the high priest. And this holiest of holies was hidden by a great veil. And only the high priest was allowed in there to meet with God. But Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Jesus died... There was a great earthquake and the veil torn in two. What that tells us is that no longer is only the priest allowed to meet with God. We all have access to him now through the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus made the last sacrifice once for all, and then God sent the Holy Spirit to us, we are now able to approach God without the priest without the sacrifice of animals. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We are now able to boldly go to the throne of grace and obtain our mercy and find grace for the help that we need. Because once Jesus did this, the veil was torn away. There is no separation now between the holiest of holies, the mercy seat of God, and all of us. We are able to boldly approach his throne now. And so this is what God did for us all the way back in the beginning with Adam and Eve by making that first animal sacrifice. He made a way for us to have atonement for our sins from the beginning. Just with that simple covering for their bodies, he laid the foundation for the covering of our sins and ultimately for the covering that Jesus provides us with his blood. And so that's why when we confess our sins, we can go and be covered by the blood of Jesus. We no longer have to hide in our sin because we can hide in our Lord We no longer have to cover our sin and make it where nobody knows that it's there. We can boldly go to the throne and confess it, and Jesus can cover it with his blood. This is what God gave us. And so, yes, the people suffered consequences. And yes, all people, because of Adam and Eve's sin, suffer consequences here on this earth. But God did not end the story there. He did not make us without hope. 
He gave us a way out because He knew that now that we know the difference between good and evil, we are sometimes going to choose evil, much of the time. And so He said, I don't want permanent separation between me and my creation. They are my prize. They were made in my image. These are the people that I love. And so because the punishment for sin is death and someone had to die, he first allowed animals to die in our place and then he allowed Jesus to die once for everyone. He took the place for us. The punishment that we deserve, Jesus took upon himself so that we never ever had to bear that. He's the only one that can do it because he's the only one that doesn't have sin to die for of his own. See, I can't die for your sin because I have my own sin. So if I die, then I just got the punishment that I deserve. No big deal. If you die, you just get the punishment that you deserve. And the animals can't make that sacrifice because they have no sin at all. So they're not dying for their own sin. They're not dying for our sin. They don't even understand it. They can do no wrong. They don't have comprehension of the law. Jesus, being perfect, is the only one that can die for us because when he dies, he's not paying for his sin. God can impute our sin onto him and he can die for our sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Today, we want to say that we don't like to tell people about their sin because that might make them feel bad. Well, here's what God says. God says, tell them about their sin. Let them have godly sorrow. Let them repent so that they can hear the good news. Because if we don't tell you that you do the thing that needs the Savior, then the Savior isn't good news. But if you know that you need a Savior and I come and tell you, hey, I have one for you, then that is good news. That's what the gospel is. So we heard that we sinned. We heard that we feel bad about that sin. We heard that there were consequences for those sins. And those are all like, eh, I don't really like to listen to that. But there is good news. There's someone that can pay the price for that. You don't have to. This is not bad news. We can tell people that they sin and need a Savior because that's not the end of the story. The end of the story says, I have a Savior for you. I know Him. His name is Jesus. And guess what? It's okay to tell other people that they sin because we sin too. So we're not saying you are a horrible person. We're just saying, hey, you do things wrong just like I do things wrong. And you need a Savior just like I do. We need to be telling other people the good news that says, yes, we fell, but God made a way for that not to eternally separate us from Him. Okay, so I'm going to leave you with that. Feel free to email me. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. I'll respond to all the emails that I can. I might even respond to some on another episode. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions, whatever it is you have for me. Unfortunately, the sin does not end with Adam and Eve. And so next episode, we will be talking about the sin of their children and what our lesson can be in that. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. We're going to end there. Thanks. Have a good day.